Welcome back to the Revolution in Ideology podcast. I'm Jared. I'm Nick. And uh, today we are uh, trying to go back to the more ideological conversations that we started this podcast with. We're going to look at the birth of monotheism today in the form of Zoroastrianism. One of the reasons we decided to try and get back into this like ideological way of looking at the world or investigating um, the reasons we look at the world ideologically and how that affects like material conditions is the last couple episodes we talked about, you know, spirituality and anarchism through Sufism and Taoism. And it got us thinking that maybe we do need to get further into exploring ideological constructs that might or might not, we may debunk this, inform the creation of states or systems of oppression. Thoughts on that, Nick? Yeah, I think that we've done a lot in the realm of like revolution and social change. And we've done the whole Myth is America portion of this podcast. And I, we're both just excited to get back into sort of ideology and why we think the way that we do, which is the title of a class that we're teaching right now. So as we're going through that course in real life, we also wanted to do a few episodes on these concepts and these ideas and explore them even further. It doesn't mean we're going to be done with like the Myth is America series, but we are putting it on hiatus for a little bit to dig back into, again, some of these more – at least right now where our minds are, interesting conversations. Debunking American history is super fun, but like this is something that Nick and myself are both a little bit more passionate about right this second, digging deeper into the way we think about the world. So without further ado, let's get into the birth of monotheism. As uh, the title of the episode indicates, we are going to operate under the auspices that monotheism was born in ancient Iran. And it falls under the moniker now of Zoroastrianism. Now, for some people, that's a little bit controversial because they want to assume that it was probably Judaism that then gave birth to eventually Christianity and Islam. But no, we are going to stand firm on this podcast that Zoroastrianism predates all of those and actually inspired them. We'll get into some of those details here in a moment. But before we do, we want to talk in general what does monotheism mean or represent in terms of ideological construction? So before we even get into the history of Zoroastrianism, let's just talk about like the general notion of monotheism and how that changes uh, humanity's trajectory. So the development of monotheism represents one of the most important points um, on our ideological evolutionary path. It's important to note that monotheism's impact, both as like a standalone ideology and its impact in changing how humans view and think about the world moving forward, was not limited to subscribers. In simple terms, even non-believers exist in a world shaped by the prescribed ways of knowing and values ingrained in societies through monotheism over the past like 3,500 years. What do you think I mean by that, Nick? What am I saying? Even if you're like a non-believer, like you're an atheist or an agnostic or even a Hindu or something like that, you still live in a world shaped by monotheism. What do I mean by that? Yeah, I think that it's been become such a dominant discourse over since its inception that it is permeated through every aspect of every society, essentially. Even like you said, if you're a non-believer, you still your life is impacted and you live according to some of the tenets that monotheism has brought about, even if non-spiritual ones. We'll talk about like linear timelines and so on, things that impact our lives that have nothing to really do with this one God way of thinking. Yeah, I mean, here, let's do a couple of, uh, of bullet points on how monotheism has shaped the world for most of us, for both like subscribers and non-subscribers alike. Uh, and Nick and myself wouldn't even count ourselves as subs subscribers, yet these ways of thinking have kind of clouded our worldview. 
So the first one is monotheism presented a clear break from viewing times time in terms of cycles or as circular. At first by proposing and then at its peak of power enforcing the notion of a beginning and an end to everything, monotheism played the biggest role in conditioning Western societies to become linear thinkers. Now, you'll have to go back uh, many episodes and find some of our episodes on more like circular thinking and indigenous societies and time as cycles and that being a more natural way of thinking about the world. We're not going to like regurgitate that right now. But what we will fully fledge out is this notion that monotheism put an end to that for good, really, that we are now linear thinkers. I don't know that monotheism is 100% to blame for all of it, but it is certainly the one that puts an end to it for good. How do you think monotheism did this? It made us like linear thinkers. I think like what you said, the beginning and the end is absolutely key. It lays out the, I mean, literally Genesis, the origins of the universe, um, and has a really, I mean, compelling, I guess, to give it credit, story for billions of people of how this happens. So it lays out specifically the beginning and then it also lays out the end. However, many other, I guess we'll call them ideologies, pre-monotheistic faiths had stories for how the world began. What I think is mainly different is the story for what happens in the end because monotheism is really one of the first where there is an infinite afterlife. And I think that that has huge ramifications for how we think about time and how we think about our time on Earth specifically. It's not the first, like in class you do agent Egypt and so on, but I think it's the first that really like systematizes and codifies this way of viewing the world that becomes incredibly popular. Nice. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, perfect, perfect. Let's just keep moving here. Next bullet point on this. Based on the notion of linear thinking, monotheism helped condition us, especially in the West, to value the notion of progress. And I use progress with the biggest air quotes possible because progress is a very loaded term. Um, Progress in general. It gets us to value notions of progress. Though later ideologies would more specifically explain and exploit this idea for like their own valued gains, uh, again, like positivism, scientism, capitalism, later ideologies will build off this already important foundation laid by monotheism regarding like progress as a good thing. And I know it's super controversial to say in, especially as two academics, that progress isn't always a good thing, but we are saying progress isn't always a good thing. One need look no further than like the industrial revolution or something along those lines or the Holocaust, right? Yeah, it was I mean, done in like, the name of progress. So, right. Yeah. Nuclear weaponry. It it doesn't mean it's also negative either. For every uh, you know, AK forty seven, there's a polio vaccine and vice versa. So it's more of a gray, right? Mm-hmm. But we tend to tend to follow the notion that progress itself is always a positive. And I don't know that Nick or myself are gr- agree with that. But my I mean, progress the idea out. of progress is ideological. And whether you view it as bad or good is a result of the ideology to which you subscribe, right? We I just committed thinking through this and I just wrote it up on the board. I want to do an episode on this specific idea because it is so influential in the way that we think about this world, this this teleological way of viewing time and humanity and that we are on this trajectory of progress and we will inevitably get to somewhere. And I think that informs the way that we think as like modern advanced industrial humans so much and it is so ideological. So we'll do that in the future. But yes, monotheism, many argue, is the root of that way of thinking. 
Uh, monotheism also laid out and championed pre-existing ideologies, some of the first ideologies technically that predate monotheism. It reinforced them or in certain cases literally carved them into stone. Um, even notions of class stratification and a hierarchy become more codified under monotheism, especially when we get to the more popular Abrahamic versions of monotheism, when we have like, uh, I mean, easy examples of popes and popes and cardinals and archbishops and bishops and priests and lay people and all that other good stuff. It fully, again, codifies hierarchy, whereas before, even in places like ancient Egypt or Babylon or whatever, it's more of a a suggestion, and it just kind of happens through material circumstance, monotheism ideologically rationalize it. Yeah, and it also it. is the ultimate authority, right? That has authority, that's the top of the hierarchy, that has authority over everyone else in that hierarchy, and that is unquestionable. The other pre-existing ideology that uh, monotheism reinforces is patriarchy. And patriarchy certainly predates monotheism. There is no denying that, and there are numerous non-monotheistic societies around the world that are wildly uh, patriarchal. But monotheism for the West certainly, basically, as we just talked about with hierarchy, codifies it. And I mean, literally, the first person to kind of ruin things in Genesis is Eve. The story could have easily presented, uh, uh, you know, Adam as the one that kind of screwed up wholly on his own. But no, the temptress Eve got him to, uh, you know, eat of the fruit. And we'll actually dig into this in a later episode even more in depth, but like these notions of patriarchy are further ingrained in Western discourse because of monotheism and its rationalization. I mean, even in rabbinical culture, when we're talking about like oral Torah, like women weren't allowed to be keepers of oral Torah and things along those lines. So, I mean, anything you want to add to that being more of an expert on the birth of patriarchy than I am, Nick? Yeah, I think that it's key just for us to understand how monotheism was used as a tool to further entrench like patriarchal societies, which we'll dig into later. And finally, the most important point we want to bring forth regarding ideological construction and monotheism's role in it for uh, humanity ever more moving forward is uh, monotheism built into the Western ethos the notion of one truth, that there is only one right answer regardless of the question. Even for questions not engaging in God or his story, Western individuals most often seek singular answers, paths, or ways of knowing in almost all their aspects of life. Education, the workforce, the family, we're always looking for a single answer. Even our scientists, and people don't think like religion and science have as much in common. They have so much in common. Both mm -hmm. basically posit this notion that there is one way of looking at the world. Now, do they agree on what that way is? Of course not. But again, without monotheism conditioning us to look for single answers rather than multiple, science and the enlightenment and all of those wonderful things that come after would never have even been a thing. So it's super interesting that now some see them, those two schools or discourses of ways of thinking, religion and science, as like combative, when in reality they share a lot in common. What do you think of that? Yeah, I think it's interesting to think about, though, just the transition from like polytheistic or animistic like belief structures to monotheistic belief structures represents this transition in a way of thinking from many possible mystical and spiritual truths to one very specific truth and the ramifications that has for humanity going forward in our way of thinking and behaving and interacting with each other and with the natural world is incredibly significant. So let's just dig right into um, 
the first monotheism. And again, we're standing hard on this. Sometimes in in different settings, we'll kind of, you know, try and play both sides of the coin here. But but I'm going to take a stand on the podcast right now. I do believe that Zoroastrianism predates the Abrahamic faiths by a wide margin. But I will enter into this debate real quick, just so our listeners have an idea of what the debate is. Long story short, Zoroaster was a prophet. And we'll go through some of the things that are revealed to him um, by his one true God and how that ends up creating the first monotheistic ideology here in just a moment. But before we do, there is a debate as to when this prophet actually lived. The debate is separated by a thousand years. Some scholars around the world argue that he lived around 1700 BCE. Um, and, of course, ancient Iran, which we'll talk about here in a moment. Other scholars, usually of the Judeo-Christian or Islamic traditions, argue he only lived at 700 BCE. Now, in the ancient world, and when we're talking about the past, thousand years might not seem like a big deal, but it's a pretty big deal because over that thousand years is when we start getting oral Torah and the origins of Judaism. If we are to operate under the un, – basically under the auspices uh, that Zoroaster existed in 1700 BCE, he predates the oral Torah and then the written Torah. Um, and thus we could inarguably make the assertion that Zoroastrianism fed Judaism. If for the Judeo-Christian or Islamic scholars that like to place him at 700 BCE, if that's when he lived, he is just one of many – prophesizing something similar around the same time as, again, the earliest rabbinical culture. And for, again, Jews, Christians, and Muslims that all follow this this this, this oral Torah at first, this is important because this is the basically the start of all three of the Abrahamic faiths. There's a lot at stake here for those people. What's at stake? Why is it so important that Judaism for them predate Zoroastrianism or vice versa. And I actually, you know what, not even vice versa. Let's focus on why it's so important for these followers that Judaism predates Zoroastrianism, even though, again, we are taking a stand on this podcast that it does not. Zoroastrianism predates Judaism based on our research. Like we're about to see when you go through Zoroastrianism and Zoroaster and his life, so many of the stories and morals and theological concepts that we see in the Judeo-Christian faiths come straight, I mean, they straight jacked it from Zoroastrianism if we're going forward with the assumption that Zoroaster lived a thousand years before we start seeing oral Torah, etc. So what's at stake here is the origin of monotheism. And for the Judeo-Christian faiths, if they admit that Zoroaster lived in the earlier time frame, they have to also admit that they were not the first monotheisms. And that jeopardizes their legitimacy. And I think built into these, and we'll get to this in a future episode, built into the Abrahamic faiths is a notion of exceptionalism. Um, it has to be built into these faiths. For the Jewish people, literally a chosen people, right? Exceptionalism there. Christianity, exceptionalism, but with an expansionist mindset as well as Islam. Um, so to have a faith that predates all of them, that clearly inspired all of them, makes them not exceptional in really any way, or at least in the ways that they would posit they should be. Also, I think it gives credence to this idea that the origin stories of ideologies are incredibly, incredibly key 
to their legitimacy. We, this is even why we were doing the Myth is America series. We're critiquing the origin story of the United States. And so the origin story of the Judeo-Christian faiths rests on this exceptionalism, like you just mentioned, that they were the first. But Zoroastrianism, uh, clearly in our minds, based on the research that we have done, was first, and that notes other scholars across the world as well. And it's interesting to understand that it falls purely on ideological lines, that the Judeo-Christian scholars believe firmly in the latter date, and all other scholars believe firmly in the earlier date. And it's no accident, like it's no coincidence that, that you fall directly on those lines based on whatever your faith is or whatever you believe. Yeah, I mean, if you're really bored and have a lot of free time, go ahead and Google Origin of Zoroastrianism, and you can read both sides of the argument. Mm-hmm. Almost to a T, the 700 BCE advocates are literally on full-blown, like, theological websites, either that are Jewish or Christian for the most part. I mean, mm-hmm. it's 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 pretty obvious. Um, But anyway... Let's move forward. Let's let's go into history real briefly. Not going to spend a lot of time here because this is uh, we want to focus more on ideology than history in this episode. Hang on, though. I want to pause for just oh, a second because okay. you just made me think of something that I wish we had brought up in class the other day. Is okay because the listener, their first gut reaction is to be if they're interested in this to go Google and find out the truth. The key is that there is no truth. That this is purely ideological, ideologically generated. That the latter date is invented by the Judeo-Christian faith so that they can have a claim to the origins of monotheism. So it's important for us to understand going into this is like, because like I said, the listeners are going to be like, well, what's the truth? What was the true date? You will not find the truth when you go out and research this. You're going to have to side with one camp or the other, and both of them have a claim to what the truth is. Nice. All right, so now let's go into a super brief history. Again, this, this episode is meant to be more ideological than historical, but I do need to set the stage. We're going to be in ancient Iran, um, and for those of you that are listening and are like, oh, I thought Iran was a modern day nation state. No, Iran translates as into English from the ancient Persian land of Aryans. And we talked about this in, a, I believe, an episode on the Kurds that we were doing. But regardless, the reason we called it Persia for so long was the westernization of the notion of what it meant to be Persian. Whereas in Iran, it would always have been Iran. So hopefully we cleared that up. Who were the people that lived in this ancient region around 1700 BCE? It was a whole bunch of different groups, some city-states, some tribes. Um, it is. It was literally the crossroads of the ancient world. So there are a whole host of different people, people that we would call Aryans or Medes or, or, or Parsis or uh, Persis as as the Greeks would eventually call them it it's 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 a mix of very different groups of people and specific to 1700 BCE one of the issues that came from being this crossroads of different cultures and different groups and different traditions that have been well established at this point again civilization had already been around at this what we would call civilization had already been around for about 2300 to 3000 years so yes there are established narratives ways of doing things cultures language groups etc people competing for resources this is already a thing in 1700 BCE it led to constant conflict in the region and that conflict led led to inequity, socioeconomic stratification, patriarchy, violence. It wasn't the nicest place to be in 1700 BCE. It led to subjugation. It led to abuse of women, which was important because, again, people still remember their more matrilineal or circular origins. This was not – again, if if you are living then and you happen to be Zoroaster who we're about to talk about – 
life isn't the way it's supposed to be, or at least how you think it's supposed to be if you're operating under some sort of uh, absolute moral or ethical compass. What do you think of that? I mean, it's going to be common in all the monotheisms that our prophets are going to basically live in a world where they see corruption and problems. Whew, this is a big one because we could go off the rails here for a really long time. But like the one of the theories of ideology is that ideology exists to masks the con- mask or solve the contradictions that exist within a society. So from that perspective, it makes absolute sense that the prophets would come and I guess I'll use the term invent, even though I'm sure that's highly offensive to many people, invent these ideologies that would attempt to sort of glue together the contradictions that they're experiencing in their society. And they back these with stories. A lot of these are like they're all narrative-based, and most of them at that time were still oral, although, again, like cuneiform and hieroglyphs were already a thing for like the well-established societies just a little bit further to the west in in Babylon and and Egypt and and the Assyrians and whatnot, although we're not to the Assyrians yet, but whatever. Anyway... One of the things that, that, that is important is these narratives then compete for influence and that competition for influence is what at least some people like Zoroaster see as like the root of the problem. So if he, looking at the issues around him, the inequality, the violence, um, other things that he hated were, uh, the immorality, um, rampant use of hallucinogens is often cited as something he disliked. I don't know why, but that's, for another episode, um, sacrifice both human and animal. These are things that, again, he saw around him and for whatever reason, he, he decided he thought these were immoral and unethical. And he thought they were all backed by the, not just the mismatched people, but the fact that these mismatched people all believed in different narratives. He thought if he could unify the narrative, he could unify the people and there would be honestly, a a more stable and peaceful and equitable society. So his intentions are good. We're going to see this with every prophet we talk about when we dig into monotheism, at least in this episode and the very next one, whether we're talking about Zoroaster or, or a Moses or a Jesus of Nazareth or a prophet Muhammad, if we even get to that, they're trying to fix material circumstances that are inequitable or horrible at the time through ideological discourse. Why? I mean, I think we need to call it what it is, which is homogenization, not of race or anything like that, like we're more used to that term today, but homogenization of narrative. And the concept like you just went through is if we can all just believe in one story, then we won't disagree so much mm-hmm. and there won't be as much conflict. That sentiment is still alive today. Uh, many people believe this, right? If we just all had one language or if we like all of these things, then we wouldn't disagree so much. For Zoroaster, it's if we just had this one story, then we would all get along. And this just gives credence to this idea of this one truth that is born during this period. Perfect. I can't add anything to that. That's exactly what I had going through my mind as you were kind of laying that out. Okay. Um, so he sees these issues with his society. Um, again, during 1700 BCE through 1500 BCE. I shouldn't even add that second date in there. That might just confuse again and whatever. 1700 BCE. Um, he heads out of society to begin to meditate or ruminate on these issues. This will also be common among all of our monotheistic prophets of yore. They will leave society, head out into somewhere that is open, barren, but in my opinion, and this might be my own bias coming in here from more of the ecological point of view, into nature to kind of find themselves, to like think about the world in a larger scale and figure out what they can do to make it a better place. 
so first and foremost, let's get the elephant in the room. Let's let's go after the elephant in the room here. Going out by yourself to talk to God is like obviously I, I mean we could pick that apart all day. God never talks to everybody. He only talks to these individuals who are like by themselves in a cave outside of Mecca or on top of a mountain talking to a bush or uh, whatever, out in the desert for 40 days, right? These are the only times that, that God comes to these individuals. And again, as as non-monotheists ourselves, or at least not specific monotheists or agnostic or whatever Nick and myself would even talk about ourselves in that way, it, it, it sounds condescending to say that, but I think there is a reason for that. Why, let me just be clear. Let me clear this up. I'm going to ask Nick this question. Why does God only come to these individuals that are upset when they leave society and they're by themselves in the wilderness? Because then it can never be proven or disproven whether or not that actually happened. So from an ideological perspective, it's unquestionable. Okay. It cannot be proven epistemologically whether or not that happened. There was no witnesses, right? There's no one to say that didn't happen, dude. I was with you the whole time. Or like, holy shit, that totally happened. I was there. Like, that's not possible. Okay. The second part of this that I want to talk about, even though I was trying to spit this out earlier and it wasn't coming out that well, is I do believe firmly, whether it is God or their conscience or somebody communicating with these prophets when they're out by themselves, there is some sort of connectivity at being in the elements, being closer to the natural world and outside of whatever civilization is at a, in a given era. It, civilization wasn't even as, as disgusting as it is now with like, you know, like the concrete jungles everywhere and whatnot. But still, you could find yourself losing your connectivity to something greater than yourself. Merely going on a walk at sunset on the beach and experiencing that for some people can be like spiritual or climbing to the top of a mountain and having that like endorphin rush and whatnot while you look down upon all below you. Like those are those are feelings and those feelings can be interpreted in different ways. What do you think of this? Like getting back to – basically what I'm saying is if you want to feel better about things or consider society better, the first thing is you got to get out of it. The second thing is get back to who we used to be. At one with nature. What do you think of that? No, I totally agree. Um, like the exa three examples you just gave very clearly, I guess four examples. These men escape from the society in which there are problems that they're experiencing and go out into nature to, I think the point you're making is to kind of get back to our sort of human nature, which is in theory being more tightly connected to the natural environment, which I think is actually important. Yeah, for them, it ends up being a god, but I think we still do this today. And what I was, again, trying to spit out is, is Nick and myself would never even argue that we subscribe to any religion. Um, and yet there are times when both of us like just go out and like when we're, you know, just same thing. We go out to nature and we have a feeling. Now, what we describe that feeling as is very different than probably what Zoroaster describes it as or Moses would or uh, Father Abraham or Jesus or whoever. But it's still something. It's something that is different. And uh, that's what we want to focus on. He started doing this at the age of – Hang on, though. I think something's oh. important that we need to touch on here just because I think it's interesting is this idea of the hero's journey. Mm, which is I like that. Yeah. both like this concept of even if it's like fictional or non-fictional, this concept that like the hero's journey always begins with leaving home, 
right? And the example that most listeners are going to be uh, familiar with is like Star Wars, right? Luke has to leave home. Or in fact, if you, yeah, whatever, I, went, I was going to go into Rick and Morty for a second. But let's, not, <laughs> let's not do that. Um, their whole, the premise of their entire show is like these adventures away from home, right? Or whatever. Right. Um, so it's important for everyone we're going to talk about in the context of these few episodes that they leave their society, they journey out from home. You and I have always t- also talked about how people throughout history, like real life people, not the Zoroaster or whatever, wasn't a real life person, but like more modern people, the same thing is actually true. That at some point in their trajectory, they are sometimes forced or voluntarily like leave home, right? We talk about in our revolutions class, Martin Luther King King Jr. went to jail and wrote the letter from Birmingham jail. He was forced to be exiled from society. Hitler goes to jail and writes Mein Kampf. Mandela goes to jail and like that's part of his his, his hero's journey, right? There's so many examples. On the motorcycle. Exactly. Um, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's good. He started this. By the way, I just want to clarify that I'm not calling Hitler a hero just so we're on Yeah, I thought that was an interesting addition to your list of revolutionaries, (laughs) but I wasn't going to call you out on it. Yeah. Anyway. um, Yeah, he sucks. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, let's not. Let's not. Okay. Let's get back to the topic at hand here. He started receiving these revelations at the age of 30 on these journeys to the mountains, the mountains of, of Iran. And, uh, and these revelations would eventually be compiled in poetic verse, which is important for the time period merely because at first they're orally translated. And poetic verse is honestly, if it's, it's, if you sing it, it's easier to memorize. Just like, you know, just like a, a modern pop song today, that will stay in your head much, uh, much more often than a PowerPoint presentation you saw at work because of like the sing song, like kind of nature of it. I mean, we even sing songs to like, remember like the, the, the great lakes or something like that. Right. Or the alphabet. So I also think it's important because this point in time is a a transition between purely oral transition into written transition. And I think that the songs and the poems kind of fill that, fulfill that function there. The collection of songs or hymns that that become Zoroastrian are compiled at a later date into written form, and they are collectively known as the Avesta Gathas. And uh, there is debate as to what are like legitimate Avesta Gathas and what are illegitimate that were added way too late and they're not really from Zoroaster. We don't want to dig into that. That's just – that's we're going to be you know going through the weeds if we try and figure out which ones are legitimate. Um, we're going to – when we actually start reading a couple of these um, verses, uh, these ones are given to us by a translator named uh, DJ Irani. Um, and of course that means he is from Iran, so we think his uh, translation would be the most – um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, genuine um, or most accurate. So from from the ancient language to English, we're not going to get into them quite yet. I want to lay out some very important bullet points on what these Gathas collectively reveal to us uh, about the world and what he, Zoroaster then takes down from the mountains back into society and begins to basically proselytize. What he begins to teach to try and fix again all of the issues of a very divided violent, um, inequitable, and in his mind, immoral world. So again, we're going to do the very basics. First and, and most importantly, getting back to this notion of division, he wants to create one narrative. 
And to do that, you need one truth. And we've already talked about that. Monotheism lays out this notion of one truth. And the easiest way to do that is to basically dismiss or get rid of all of the other competing notions of truth, i.e. other gods, and dedicate yourself to one, the one true. And in this case, he is revealed to him that there is one true God, and for Zoroastrians, uh, his name is Ohura Mazda. Um, and in most translations from the ancient languages to uh, modern-day English, he is often described, Ohura Mazda is described as the way, the light, and the truth. What do you think of that, Nick? Sounds eerily familiar. I don't know. Right. I think some other some other religions might have. Well, let's be blunt. Straight up copied that um, basic understanding of of who the one true God might be. It's also interesting that we talk about that part called the light. Only this is just a little piece of trivia, but I think it's neat. Um, Zoroastrians were often known as like fire worshippers and stuff because of this like dedication to like appealing to the light. And back then, obviously, there's no electricity, so fire was it. So fire was often associated with Zoroastrianism. And so some, again, outsiders would consider them like fire worshippers because they had like these these flames burning outside of all of the temples and whatnot. So it's just a neat little aside um, where fire becomes very important in religion. Okay. Other things that are revealed to Zoroaster in these early revelations is that uh, Ahura Mazda created everything. He created the world. He created humanity, um, and 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 that's important because in other traditions, especially if we look at like indigenous traditions in Australia or the Americas or Africa, the creative essence is much more complicated than basically like one honestly, one dude coming down and like just making everything. Like why would we want it to – why would we simplify the creative essence of of everything to – yeah, I'm going to hurt some feelings here – intelligent design of one specific dude in this case, which just backs patriarchy, but whatever. I think there are two main reasons. The first is that it's easier to understand. If it's just one guy that comes down and does this, like the story is super short and it it's, you're off and going. The other thing that I think is interesting – is that it begins a trajectory which we didn't actually mention before, but this is super key into what monotheism brings of an anthropocentric worldview. Mm, I like that. That yeah. God is personified. Absolutely. And in this case, he is personified eventually when we get to Genesis in like man's image or vice versa, depending on your belief structure. But like it is – Zoroaster's not that specific. He right. doesn't He doesn't humanize Ahura Mazda a whole lot, but – but it is this one creative male essence, so that's important. Okay. We also find out that in this creative process, Ahura Mazda has some help of other spiritual beings that are not gods. I think this is important for a couple of reasons. First, I think having other spiritual essences will help in his proselytization transition from polytheism to mono. Like, look, you're not completely wrong by believing in multiple gods, but you did get it wrong. They're not gods. They're just like angels or as he would call them, jinn, which is the root word of genie. Um, they're just like, they're just jinn, and that's where you kind of got it wrong. So don't feel like I'm coming down off of this mountain telling you everything you're doing is wrong. You've just kind of misdirected your dedication. These are just helpers of the one true God. I mean, if you're trying to spread this truth and gain converts, essentially, it's really hard to do that by going and shitting on everything they believe. It's much easier if you can incorporate what they believe into your system. And this will be a common tactic of monotheism. They'll take existing traditions and just slowly but surely mold them um, to meet the the ultimate aim of the proselytizers. 
So yeah, absolutely. And it'll become even more paramount when we get to like Christianity and stuff. Okay. The other thing that's important is that one of these creative essences, one of these jinn ended up having a series of disagreements and outright battles with Ahura Mazda. So many that he is eventually cast out of the creative, I don't want to use the word heavens because they don't use that, but the creative like area, the creative space. Ahura Mazda casts out a rebellious spirit to some sort of unknown underworld even this notion of just being cast out again what do you think of that yeah i mean we're gonna see this pop up later on it's right like familiar again. this should sound super familiar this fallen let's just say it, this fallen angel mm-hmm. is what you know later the judeo-christian will, will call it this fallen angel comes to be known by a, a whole bunch of different names there is debate as to which one comes first it doesn't matter i'll give the most popular zoroastrian two Ahraman or uh, Engra Mainyu, and, and excuse my pronunciation on the second one. But slowly but surely, that name began to morph once it made its way into the Semitic languages like Hebrew and even Arabic. Like that name began to change, Beazelbub, Shayatin, and then just flat out Satan. Um, and we know this um, based on research that this notion of what we'll, we'll just call it a devil, so to speak, really originated in Zoroastrianism. It flat out did. Um, it will also then posit that these two will constantly be in a cosmic battle of basically good versus evil. Ahraman represents the dark, the bad, the lies, whereas, you know, Ahraman does the way, the light, and the truth. This is important because then, again, in these Gethas, a new interesting notion is brought to at least ancient Iran, free will. You, as the believer, now have a choice to make in how you live your life. Do you live your life dedicated towards the the way, the light, and the truth? Or do you live your, your life in aim towards the lie, the dark, the immoral, the unethical, the disgusting? You, every decision you make now has weight attached to it. Which one are you basically voting for or working for, the good or the bad? What do you think of that? Yeah, it's also related to like this concept of duality, right? There's two choices and you have to make one throughout your life and the way that you act and speak and live and et cetera. Right. It's very – another term that comes along later, Manichaean, right? Like this duality is is key. And even though we're looking at it like through the, the idea of a single lens, duality feeds the single lens in this regard. Basically, you don't really have a choice. You're going to follow the good whether you like it or not. We've only introduced the bad. For I mean, what purpose? Why would we even introduce the bad? Because it gives you a vested stake. Going back to the question humans have been answering, asking for a very long time, why am I here? Well, Zoroaster is now like basically co-opting that notion. You're here to serve Ahura Mazda and you will do the good things that these songs that I'm singing tell you to do if you want to serve him. That's why you're here. It also answers that age-old question, well, what happens when I'm dead? Well, in this case, there's no reincarnation or you're not going back into the earth to feed like the, the, the circle of life as Elton John called it. In this case, you – there is a vested stake. You do the good things, you go live forever with Ahura Mazda. Um, you do the bad things, you're stuck going down to live with Ahraman or later on what we would just call the devil and it's going to suck. This means at some point in your life, you will be 
judged. Now, this is not the first religion to judge people by any stretch of the imagination, right? The, the caste system is coming to fruition down in Southeast Asia. Um, the Egyptians are weighing uh, people's hearts against feathers on scales. But it is the first time that we see it with this like very specific duality. It's, there's not a lot, there's a lot, lot more nuance in Hindu dharma and karma than there is in this. And for the Egyptians, it wasn't even everybody that had their hearts weighed. It was only like upper class folks. Um, so again, it wasn't for everybody. And, and also, I might as well just get this out of the way right now. There are probably one or two listeners out there that are going to be super excited to comment if you're on the YouTube version of this. That technically Egypt had a monotheism under uh, the sun disc god, god Aten, but that only lasted for basically less than a generation, and it was a mystery cult, and it went away real quickly. So we don't consider that the first like real important monotheism. So I just want to get that away now while I'm thinking of Egypt. Back to Zoroastrianism. What's important, Nick, about this day of judgment and this notion of judgment and weighing your – Basically, all of the deeds for your life, good ones and bad ones, and hoping the good ones outweigh the bad ones. It's like the ultimate consequence, right? So if you don't live according to the faith, the judgment day for you as an individual will come, and then it will be decided where you end up for all of eternity. And like you said, this is different than just like this idea of dharma and karma or this idea of going back into the earth and feeding the plants and animals and so on, the circle of life like you mentioned now, your soul escapes this fate and can live forever if you make the right decisions. Like there is no more ultimate consequence uh, and motivation for you to follow this belief structure. Absolutely. Um, one of the key components that you did touch upon, and I do think I need to like make this distinction, is the good news for Zoroastrian is even if you make more bad choices – um, you're not going to spend eternity with Ahriman. Uh, you only spend the amount of time it takes for Ahura Mazda to come down and kick that ass. Essentially, when this cosmic battle takes place and the end of days reaches us, Ahura Mazda will end up victorious. And when he defeats Ahriman, then all souls are set free to live with uh, Ahura Mazda. The Abrahamic faiths will not copy that. If you are in hell... In the Judeo-Christian or Islamic traditions, that's a life or a life, an eternity-long sentence. Why mm -hmm. do you think that's – why do you think the Abrahamic faiths like doubled down on this even harsher than the Zoroastrians? I mean if we're purely doing it from like the cynical ideological perspective, it's they required more severe consequences to get conscripts – to get people to follow their belief structure. OK. I'm sure, sure there are other like theological reasons, but I'm just going to stick with that. Right. And this place that you go is also a little bit different in the Zoroastrian traditions. It's known as the Druj. I'll spell it out for listeners. D-R-U-J, which roughly translates as like the nothing is like the best translation that, that, that I've seen, uh, regarding this, this word, the Druj. So rather than a kind of descriptive hell, which only gets more descriptive with time, right? Like its peak description is 1300s Italy with, with Dante and his divine comedy. It only gets more descriptive. With the Persians and the Zoroastrians, it's just the Druze. It's just nothing. It's not super descriptive. We don't need much description there. It's just the nothing. What, what does that say? I mean, I mean I, we just had this lecture last week in class and all of our students, I mean, almost all of them agree that that's even more terrifying than knowing what you're in for. The fact that like 
you existentially just do not exist. You live in this state of nothing. Like, in fact, they, some of them were like, I would rather be tortured for eternity than to just live in the druge. For sure. Whatever that means. So what are you supposed to follow in these Avestas? Ahura Mazda created and then delivered through Zoraster something known as the Eternal Law, or what Zoraster calls Diana. D-A-E-N-A. The Diana, which can be measured and checked by everything that is observable, or as the Zoroastrians would call it, Asha. So I want to, like, again, I will repeat that. There are laws to follow. The laws are called Diana. People watching, or in this case, Ahura Mazda, watching you observe these laws is called Asha. That is everything observable. Um, I don't know that that needs a whole lot of commentary, but I do need to mention that as we go through these Gathas here in a minute, a couple of them we're going to pick and choose to like read directly from the source. Um, those are important words, terms that you should know. Daina is eternal law. Asha is everything observable and usually used for judgment. I think, I think that too, this relates a little bit to this idea of omniscience, right? All knowing, everything observable and so on. Yeah, absolutely. And before we dig into these Gathas, one more important, just quick bullet point on like some basics of Zoroastrianism. It is, we've talked about it a little bit negatively, but I do see a lot of positivity in Zoroastrianism as well. And uh, and of the monotheisms, there are some parts of this one that I like a lot more than maybe some other ones. Honestly, the foundational mantra is one of those things. If you want to be a good Zoroastrian to this day, and Zoroastrianism is, is a lot less mystical now than it used to be. There's not a lot of followers anymore. Most of them are in, in, in Iran or India to this day, although there's a few kind of spread out around the world, you know, in the United States and whatnot. But this mantra is actually kind of cool, and I do appreciate it. And I think it kind of goes back to what Zoroaster was trying to accomplish. Was he really trying to be some like – all-encompassing, domineering king leader? I actually don't think so. I do think he legitimately was a prophet that was trying to make the world a better place. And once it got in the hands of leaders, it was an easy tool to manipulate. I do firmly believe that. So let me just spit out this mantra. This is what he believed. Good thoughts, good words, good deeds. That's what it takes to be a Zoroastrian. Think about the world good, speak about the world good, and you will do good things. So I do like that, and I do see, see, think the Zoroastrians were, at, at least early on, after a, a better world. Um, and in practice, some would argue that they accomplished it in many ways, but we'll get to that in a little bit when I talk specifically about the transition from Zoroastrianism to the Abrahamic faiths. So, but before we do that, we need to go right to the source. So we're going to read some of the Avesta Gathas. Again, our translation of Zarathustra's, of Zoroaster, excuse me. I might as well make this note now. Zoroaster is sometimes translated as Zarathustra as well. Nietzsche fans, there you have it. Um, anyway, some of the – what was I trying to say? Oh, the translation we're going to talk about here comes to us again from DJ Irani. Um, and uh, let's just dig right into some of these important uh, thoughts that outline Zoroastrianism via this holy text. So one of the first um, verses that I want to emphasize is uh, is Yasna 29 in this translation, um, verse 5. 
It says this, And thus we too, my soul and the soul of creation, prayed with hands outstretched to the Lord, and thus we too urged Mazda with these entreaties, Let not destruction overtake the right living, let not diligent good suffer at the hands of evil. Now that's not how the whole thing first starts. Um, in fact, the first thing starts with basically giving giving prayers to the soul of creation, which is Ahura Mazda. But But this one's a little bit later on down. It's the fifth verse. Right off the top of the bat, or right off the tip of the bat, we have this notion that, again, I'm going to repeat it. Let not destruction overtake the right living. Let not diligent good suffer at the hands of evil. What's Zoroaster, or if we are believers, Ahura Mazda trying to accomplish here? What is he laying out? So I think there's two things. From Zoroaster's perspective, I feel like he's getting at the evil and destruction that's taking place in his society at the time. And he's trying to create a belief structure where good will win out. From the theological perspective, I think it's this narrative of good versus evil and this eternal battle. And it's answering some of those questions, not necessarily the two big ones like why am I here and what happens when I die, but other questions that humans ask like why does the world suck right now? Because a lot of people will always ask that and ideologies seek to answer that question. I, shit, when we finally get to like, you know, picking apart capitalism or something, I, life sucks because you didn't work hard enough. Like that's what capitalism will tell you. Now, we don't believe that, especially on this podcast, but that's one of the things that capital, that's, that's what one of the answers to that question is based on that ideological discourse. Verse 11 in this Yasna, again, number 29, when shall truth, the good mind and the holy power hasten to me in full, my Lord? Do thou assign them to me for the great dispensation, and verily grant now to us, thy devoted servants, thy gracious help for this great cause. And here's the flat-out answer. We are performing a great cause. This is why you're here. And of course, what happens when we complete this great cause? We get truth and a good mind. That's what's at stake. We like truth. Moving on to another yasna, yasna number 28 this is an opening to prayers, and I think this is important. In humble adoration with hands outstretched, I pray to thee, O Mazda. First of all, through ho thy Holy Spirit, vouchsafe to me all righteousness of action, all wisdom of the good mind, that I may thereby bring joy to the soul of creation. I like that opening prayer in this 28th Yasna because that opening prayer has little elements that make appearances later in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. First, the allusion to one God. Second, the allusion to be thankful for all of creation. And uh, third, this notion that there is some sort of Holy Spirit, which focuses really heavily on more like Christianity in this case, mm -hmm. um, that, that God can come to you in varied incarnations. I like that because it kind of, again, it, it's going to allude to the connectivity of Zoroastrianism to the other monotheisms. Um, we also find out later in this yasna in verse five, again, we're on the 28th yasna, O Asha, equipped with the knowledge of truth and righteousness, when shall I see thee and Vohumana too? Basically, this is saying the observable is what will reveal truth to us. So I like that. And this one kind of alludes to the notion, shit, maybe even of like scientific empiricism that what we can see, what we can deem, what we can judge, that's how we find truth. Why would a spirituality, in this case, at least only in this specific verse, kind of want to limit our understanding of the world to what we can see? What do you think there? I'm not saying that's all Zoroastrianism, but this yeah. verse alludes to that. I think it it gives credence to the legitimacy of the belief structure if it doesn't rely on some kind of mystical, otherworldly 
kind of understanding all of the time. If it says, well, the way that we do judgment is based on what is observable in this world, then that's sort of a rationality there that is a little more appealing probably than, well, you have no idea how we judge you. It's just going to happen. I love that. Yasna 30 takes it up a notch and goes into like a little bit more of the creation story. It says in the beginning, there were two primal spirits, twins, spontaneously active. There is our good and evil in thought and in word and in deed. Between these two, let the wise choose aright. Be good, not base. That's important because some people accuse Zoroastrianism of not being the first monotheism, but being of more dualist, which I don't know that I would even full, full blown debate them on that. Um, here it kind of is clear that there were two creative essences, one good, one bad. But I, my argument, as I already mentioned, is that if, if you're supposed to be steered towards the good, that is creating more of like a one truth way of looking at things. Anyway, I just like that because it does talk about good and evil and it breaks the choice down for us rather than having a multiple way of ways of looking at things like maybe polytheistic societies had maybe you could dedicate yourself to a a krishna or a zeus or a, a demeter or a whatever amun ra this now presents this notion that there is right and wrong in everything you make a choice in everything we want to steer you in the right way which is obviously easy to mechanize and become like very controlling but it gives the illusion of choice. And I want to talk to you about this not just being a jumping off point for monotheism's corruption later, but like all ideologies corruption later of basically two – you have choice, but it's really only two. And it's really only one because the negative one is going to have consequences. What is this – how does this affect humanity's development moving forward in your opinion? I know that's like a super long and loaded question, but I don't know. As a sociologist, I kind of want your opinion on this. I mean I wish I could Google it right now, but I'll paraphrase anyway. The Chomsky quote that's super famous that's like, you know, the tendency of any ideology is to provide a very narrow spectrum of options but per, to allow wild debate within that very narrow spectrum. And it, for like a modern American, it's like this simple. Like if you're an American listener, you have two choices politically. Yeah, in theory, legally, you have so many choices. You could choose the Green Party or the Communist Party or the whatever. But let's be blunt. You have two choices, Republican or Democrat. That's not an accident. That is a mechanism for control. Now, in that case, you'd get to choose which one you believe is good and which one you believe is evil. But it's still – it is a narrow spectrum of possibility. And it still orients the general discourse or the dominant discourse or to borrow from Gramsci, the hegemony in the same general direction on the same trajectory. So super easy to manipulate. Um, the Avesta continues on with Yasna 31. And through the work of the best mind, give us the mighty dominion that we may overcome thereby the evil spirit of untruth. I just want to talk about that word dominion. Now, later on, that word dominion is like human control of like the earth and the animals and stuff when we get to like Genesis. In this case, it's not that specific, but it does allude to the idea that humans can have dominion over evil. Later on, if you're interpreting this, this is a way to rationalize conquest. I can argue later on, and they will, the Persians will argue the Assyrians are evil and we must then thus mm -hmm. dominate them, and they do. Or later on, dehumanization, right? Right. Um, and in that case, that specific example, yeah, the Assyrians, if you're choosing between the lesser of two evils, were pretty brutal. And the Persians did liberate a whole bunch of people. So in this case, we could argue that the good words or good thoughts, good words, good deeds came through um, in a positive way by getting rid of the Assyrian exploitation of people like the, the Jews, which we'll talk about later. 
I also think that that l- relates to anthropocentrism specifically and the idea of humans being at the top of the hierarchy in the natural world as well. Verse 11 in Yasna 31, By thy perfect intelligence, O Mazda, thou didst first create us having bodies and spiritual consciences, and by thy thought gave ourselves the power of thought, word, and deed, thus leaving us free to choose our faith at our own will. I, that verse 11 just lays out like everything I put in bullet points, so I don't know that that needs much more description. It's right there in verse 11. Free will, creation, consciousness with consequences, etc., um, I do think that's that's a pretty good one. Moving further in the same uh, Yasda, verse 21. To him who is thy true friend in spirit and in action, O Mazda Ohura, to him shalt thou give the perfection of integrity and immorality. immortality. To him thou shalt give perpetual communion with the truth and holy dominion. And to him shalt thou give the sustaining power of the good mind. So where does everything in the world good come from? Him, Ohura Mazda. It's clear. Yasna 33, in accordance with the primeval laws of existence, the judge shall deal perfect justice to all, to the good who chose the truth, to the evil who chose falsehood, and to those in whom good and evil are mixed. You don't get much more clear cut than that. You I will do be- love the wordplay there of good equals truth and evil equals falsehood and etc. We're having like epistemological discussions in these <laughs> verses, you know? Right. Skipping all the way ahead to the 44th Yasna in this this set of Gethas, this I ask thee, tell me truly, O Hura, in the beginning, who was the father and creator of Asha, the truth? Who determined the paths of the sun and the stars? Who but thee so arranged the moon to wax and wane? This, O Mazda, and much more, I fain would know. It is like a rhetorical, like, asking of questions, but it is further reflective of like, in this case, human inquiry. Like all of these questions are answered. Why does the moon do what it does? God. Why is good in the world? God. Why is bad in the world? God's adversary that you're going to help defeat. So absolutely. I think that's a good one. Um, How shall I frustrate the followers of evil, O Mazda, that they come to their blind extinction? Woo! That's a pretty strong one. Sorry, that's verse 14 of Yasna 44. How shall I frustrate the followers of evil, O Mazda, that they come to their blind extinction? Now, that's that's metaphorical. I'm not sure that's like – I'm not saying that's like genocidal or anything because the Persians themselves, when they do conquer, don't actually kill that as much as prior empires. They actually cut down on killing. But it might be the extinction of a way of thinking or living – Maybe some sort of cultural extinction, which some might say is like assimilation. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I think had they interpreted that as justification for genocide, I think they easily could have. It's there. But you're right. I think it points to their blind elimination of their belief structure and their prior ways of living and like so on for sure. Then at the time of salvation, there shall be full adoration of thy glory. I like that verse. That's verse 1 of Yasna 48. And that gives the listener or the eventual practitioner the promise of a future. This is what you get. Glory. Um, and, and anything you can imagine that might be attached to glory. So anyway, we could 
probably spend a lot more time on these gaithas, but but I don't want this episode to get too long in the tooth. So I'm going to skip ahead to Yasna 53. It's the last one of this set of gaithas, and I'm going to go into verse 9, and I think this is a, a good close to, like, the reading from the actual gaithas. Um, the men of evil creed torment thy followers, O Lord. They set themselves to condemn the, wor- the worthy, to despise the good. Where is the righteous lordship that will smite them and deprive them of their freedom? O Mazda, thine is the sovereign power whereby thou shalt give the right living and needy their ultimate better portion. And that's how this set of Gaithas, it's not the only set of Gaithas, but that's how this set of Gaithas closes out. And it's a pretty clear call to action. What action? Follow the way. I guess I don't want to say the way since we did an episode on Taoism. Follow the truth (laughs) that is this one God and this path. And I don't remember the exact terminology, but the needy will be given everything. And here's the other thing. It's not just like kind of setting this template for like eventually like we do have this right to spread our one truth to the to, throughout the world. This is what we should do. We should spread our spread our own truth because the way we do things now is like so much better than everybody else. Mm-hmm. It, there's that exceptionalism like built into there. But it's for a good cause. Mm-hmm. We can rationalize the spread because we're performing a good cause. And this becomes so clear in both Christianity and Islam. Not as much in Judaism as it's not nearly as expansionist as the other two. Uh, like we, saw, we talked about, it's more exceptionalist. But we rationalize a whole bunch of both good and bad things that our world religions have done in the past under the auspices of doing what they think is right. Um, which has ridiculous consequences all around the world. And Zoroastrianism kind of kicks that off. So let's talk about that expansion a little bit. This is where we now are going to make some of the clear connections that we would argue show that Zoroastrianism inspired Judaism. And thus, if it inspires Judaism, it de facto inspires Christianity and Islam. So let's make those like historical connections. We made some of the the very clear like spiritual connections right there or the ideological connections. It's clear. 1700 BCE, free will, fallen angel, good place, bad place, day of judgment, um, cosmic battle, like all of that. That's clear. Like it's straight up. It, it is. It clearly inspired the Judeo-Christian tradition. It absolutely did. I mean, certain terms are, are copied verbatim. The way the light and truth is copied verbatim. Okay, let's dig into this, like, historical connectivity now. Both Iranian and European scholars debate, like, when we get to a later point in Persian history, whether this great king, a dude named Cyrus the Great, was actually a Zoroastrian. But I have to talk about Cyrus because Cyrus is the great Persian king that finally, politically, unites all of ancient Iran. He does this, and he legitimately does this, over a thousand years after Zoroaster. This we do know. He is around the 6th century BCE. So in this case, this might be why the Judeo-Christian tradition likes to point to Zoroastrianism being only a little bit old, a century old, rather than a millennium old when Cyrus comes along. That might be why they like to do this. But anyway, we don't necessarily follow that line of thinking. But what is provable is that Cyrus was a great king historically and in scripture, merely my mention of Cyrus is important. There is no person in the Old Testament of the Bible that is more fondly spoken of, excuse me, no other non-Jewish person, he is non-Jewish, non-Jewish person more fondly and um, fondly spoken of than Cyrus the Great, the great Persian king. He is seen in some versions of these uh, Old Testament books as almost messianic. Why is Cyrus seen as this like, 
Messiah in Judaism, even though A, he's not Jewish, B, he's not a god or a spirit, he's a living king, why is he seen like a Messiah? Well, here's the clincher. He literally saved the Jewish people, and this is the connectivity. You see, when Cyrus forcefully, and he does, forcefully unites all the various warring factions of ancient Iran and creates an empire known as the Achaemenid Empire, um, he eventually then seeks to spread uh, his way of doing things, like we talked about in that last verse of the, of the Avestigathas. And during that spread, his conquests go west. They go east as well, but let's focus on the west now. And in these western conquests, he comes across a group of people that are famous called the Babylonians, and he kicks their proverbial asses. Once he defeats the Babylonians, he comes to find that there were certain issues in ancient Babylon or ancient Babylonian territory, and one of those issues was a lack of freedom of thought. And that freedom of thought justified a very specific Old Testament event. It's known as the Babylonian captivity. And some of our listeners will be familiar with the King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian King Nebuchadnezzar, and his capture and seizing of the uh, Israelite tribes and some of the prophecies there during that captivity of the very famous prophet Daniel. Well, all of that takes place as Cyrus is rolling through that territory. And eventually when he defeats the Babylonians and the Assyrians, who are also part of this process, he liberates the Jewish people. He liberates the Israelite tribes, allows them to go back to their hometown of Jerusalem, and even helps, he doesn't personally help, but helps fund and allows the rebuilding of the temple. And this is where Second Temple Judaism comes into fruition. It is under the tutelage of Cyrus. I want to stress this, listeners. Let me be blunt. If to this point we assume, and history seems to bear this out, that Torah at this point had only been oral, it exists. It does clearly exist. We could date it back to as, low, as old as about 1300 BCE is where historians put like Moses and stuff like that. But if Torah to this point had only been oral or predominantly oral and then goes through this like downstage of being captured by the Babylonians and is then liberated by the Persians – does it not seem feasible that the Jews would then adopt some of the ideals of their liberators? In fact, I won't even ask that question rhetorically to listeners. I'll ask Nick. What do you think of that? Yes. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it seems obvious, right? So again, I must stress this. Let's do this super brief recap. Life for the Jews sucks at this exact moment. They are in captivity in Babylon. They are then liberated by Cyrus the Great, who himself may or not be may or may not be Zoroastrian, but all of a lot of his followers are, and the Zoroastrians believe in the things that we have already outlined in this episode. It is only seems natural that because of the way things work in the ancient world and people borrowing narratives and stories and belief systems that the Jews would adopt some of these Zoroastrian ideals as they make their way back to Jerusalem, because none of this happens overnight. It's the ancient world. These journeys back to Jerusalem take years, and with them, who are they learning from? Zoroastrian priests. Okay, so that's one of the most important connections. The second connection I already mentioned, Cyrus the Great himself is mentioned in the Old, Temp the Old Testament innumerable times as a liberator, if not in some cases an outright messianic figure. Secondly, there is an entire book in the Old Testament dedicated to Jewish persons living in the Persian Empire, it's the book of Esther. 
I'm not going to go through the entire book of Esther. In fact, I'm not going to go through any of the book of Esther. It, you, you all can look it up, or if you already know it, then you know it. But this is basically the discussion of what it was like to basically be Jewish and the connectivity between Judaism and living in the Persian Empire and the mutually reflexive relationship they had on each other. And that's what I want to focus on. It is clearly Old Testament evidence of this reflexive relationship between Judaism and the Persian Empire, a Persian Empire that was Zoroastrian. So that's why I really enjoy that connectivity there. Really bringing this home is the fact that Old Testament stories all the time synthesized uh, uh, other stories of the ancient world. The Epic of Gilgamesh is super an – an easy example. It's not Zoroastrian and it's not Jewish. It's a Babylonian story, but it's a story that contains a great flood in which a god comes down and talks to a dude named Utnapishtim like, hey, dude – Things are going to end. It's going to rain for like 40 days. You can fix this, build a boat, put animals on it two by two. It's going to be sweet. You're going to survive. That's not the Old Testament. That's the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is the oldest written story in Western civilization. It is then later borrowed or co-opted by Old Testament writers. So there's already, we could see using that example, a rich tradition of the Old Testament borrowing from other stories and ideologies. I mean, let's like, I don't want to make it seem like the Old Testament and the Judeo-Christian faiths are unique in this. Every ideology borrows aspects from other ideologies to sort of fill in its gaps and answer the questions that, that its followers are having so that it can be more appealing to the masses. Right. We know, for example, the Israelites were captured in Egypt before all of the junk I just got done talking about, before we, before Moses even rises to prominence. Well, we know that certain stories of, like, resurrection were really popular in Egypt. No coincidence that stories of resurrection eventually make their way into the Old Testament, previewing, of course, the very famous one that takes place in the New Testament. Osiris himself in Egyptian, what we would call mythology, is resurrected. So these stories are, again, borrowed, co-opted. I don't want to, like, be mean. I'm not saying, like, plagiarized or anything like that. It just shows that in the ancient world, especially when we're talking about things being synthesized over thousands of years, there's going to be commonality. And exceptionalism would be, like, there is, there is no exceptionalism. That's a false narrative that is built by these Abrahamic faiths. That's really what yeah, we're trying to drive I think home. that's a key point, exactly. One of the real clinchers we can even get into the New Testament um, for. Uh, if we look at the New Testament, we know the Christmas story all too well. It is retold here in the West over and over again. So most of our listeners will not be surprised when I skip all of the details and just get to the point where Mary and Joseph are trying to find a place to have this celestial baby. And uh, they end up in a manger in, of course, Bethlehem. Um, at least as the story goes. That story really only appears in two of the synoptic gospels. I believe it's Matthew and Mark, or maybe I'm incorrect on that. Somebody can correct me in the comments if you so choose. Um, but regardless, that story of the virgin birth is important because once uh, Jesus of Nazareth is born, he is visited by three kings slash or wise men from the east. That's how the story goes, and you're all super familiar with it. They bring gifts of frankincense, gold, and myrrh, right? Um, anyway... In the story, if depending on which translation you get, like King James, NIV, whatever you're reading, sometimes they're referred to also as this name, Magi. They are Magi. Here's the clincher, guys. The Zoroastrian word for priest is Magi. Jesus of Nazareth was visited by three Zoroastrian priests. Thoughts, Nick? I mean, this just illuminates the connection between... 
in this time period, these two stories that are happening in the same place at the same time. And the fact that very clearly Zoroastrianism already exists by the time these events are taking place in this story. So, I mean, we've gone through a brief history of Zoroastrianism and like Persians and stuff. We didn't go into detail because that was not the point of this episode. The point of this episode is to talk about the birth of ideological monotheism. So I want to kind of wind down this episode again without like digging more back into the history and just talk about what we learned about Zoroastrianism. In what ways, Nick, do you think it built the linear lens that we started this episode with? How do you think it built this linearity to the way we think about the world? I mean, just the basic fundamental tenets of the belief structure of the origin story and the final day of judgment and then the eternity, uh, immortality, I guess, is the term I keep wanting to use. This immortality, right? It gives us this very clear picture of time and how these things, this trajectory of both the universe and of every individual. And I think that's key. Yeah, I like that. I think that's big. I think that's big. I mean, even though it's immortality and you could say it's perpetual and not like never ending the beginning and end notion, it is still like an end to your life here, your your material life, which you don't know what's beyond. That's why it's called faith, right? You are basically trusting these stories of thousands of years ago or their modern day teachers, whether we call them rabbis or imams or priests or pastors or whatever. You're trusting their judgment here, which is fine. Again, we're not judging judging believers would be just as hypocritical so we're not we're not here judging those people but it is faith based and that faith based is on a linear understanding of at least your material conditions in life i am born and i die and along the way i serve god allah yahweh ohura mazda whatever i also think it gives sort of related to this idea of progress in the ones, the monotheistic faiths that are expansionary by nature, progress for them is also defined in the spreading of their ideology. And that's how they make quote unquote progress, right? Well, that was my next question. How does Zoroastrianism like show like this notion of progress? Well, there was that one verse regarding like spreading the word and then punishing in a way the non-believers. I mean, and even later on, we get salt the earth and right like these yeah, types of we, these sayings. And we'll be actually going through that in the next episode. The Sermon on the Mount is like very powerful in that regard. And we'll actually be reading from, from Matthew verses five through seven in, in a future episode to talk about this notion of expansion and literally as, as Jesus of Nazareth says, salting the earth. So that's good. And that could be called quote-unquote progress. So we'll skip that one. Do you think Zoroastrianism, here's two, does as good a job of presenting hierarchy as the later Abrahamic faiths? I think the later Abra- I think I've already answered my question. I already know where you're going with this. The l- later Abrahamic faiths more solidify it. But I guess what I want to ask you is, does Zoroastrianism at least hint at it? Oh, I think so, for sure. At least the concept of this highest ultimate authority is in there everywhere. I mean, that's the fundamental tenet of the faith structure. And Zoroaster himself doesn't ever become like some amazing leader himself and like he doesn't become hegemonic. But the Persian Empire of about a millennium later does. It's interesting that they do they do become hegemonic. They become the dominant first attempt at global empire. Like everything that Rome becomes, they copied from the Persians. It's not originally Roman. Well, I mean, as much Rhodes- as we want to critique like these belief structures, like theologically and ideologically, I guess we're not really critiquing them theologically. We don't care about that. But yeah. ideologically, we actually give credence to the fact that every one of their founders, we actually believe, actually was like revolutionary and wanted to make a better world. It's only when they get co-opted that things go drastically awry. 
Which we would argue is the problem in and of itself. Even though the, 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 the original creator, the prophet, whoever it might be, and this will apply not even to just prophets. We, would, we could pick on a Karl Marx here or whatever. Even though these individuals that start these ideologies, in some cases don't even argue their ideologies. They're just trying to fix problems of the era. Practitioners make them ideologies, then not just make them ideologies, make them all-encompassing ideologies. Like follow this thing and it will fix all the problems of the world. And it ends up creating more. Like that's that's the trajectory they tend to go on. So yes, do we believe that Zoroaster was trying to fix things? Yes. Do we believe that the prophet Muhammad was trying to fix things? Yes. Jesus of Nazareth, Moses? Yes, absolutely. 100%. It's what practitioners do thereafter. Ooh, Buddhism is a super good example as well, but whatever. Okay. Back to like these questions. Yeah, it, it kind of hints at hierarchy. And then, like I said, it does hint at, it actually comes to fruition as hegemony. I do want to make some important notes what that hegemony looked like for an empire that was following good thoughts, good words, and good deeds. I most certainly will not say that the Persian empire spread through like rainbows and butterflies. There was conquest. But some of the ideals that spread in the Persian empire, and I want to give due justice being a Persian myself to like the heritage here. There's a little bit of bias and pride here. They created the first road systems that Rome would eventually uh, 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 follow. They created the first form of provincial rule where they broke everything up into provinces called satraps that eventually would be adopted by Greeks and Romans. Um, they obviously created monotheism is what we're arguing here. Um, they also created the world's first uh, basically document, written document on human rights. Cyrus, the king I just mentioned, to kind of further back what we've talked about, we don't just have sources on him in the Old Testament. We have Greek sources because we know the Greeks weren't super thrilled with the Persians. And we also have something called the Cyrus Cylinder, which after a whole lot of him giving prayers to various gods, which is what people used to debate whether he was monotheist himself, he eventually alludes to the notion that the Persian Empire will abolish slavery and provide freedom of religion. This is in the 6th century BCE, listeners, long before the modern UK or United States have our fancy constitutions. That's how forward-thinking these Persians were. And in this case, to try and put a little silver lining on Zoroastrianism, we would argue that it is the idea of good thoughts, good words, and good deeds that inspired Cyrus to perform these actions and liberate the Jews and so on and so forth. I mean, I think that it would take a certain level of hypocrisy to believe in good thoughts, good words, and good deeds and also have slaves. Like, that's right. not a thing. Right. Now, how effective was it? Well, it's still the ancient world, and Cyrus can't be monitoring an empire that is larger than any, any ever ever existed. So there are certainly backwater corners of the Persian Empire where slavery persisted. But for those of you that are super into Greek history, if you want to know why the Greeks were so, so interested in finding the Persians when the Persians tried to expand there, and Cyrus is dead by then, that's under Darius and Xerxes, one of the things that the Spartans were super scared of was having to liberate their slaves. So when we go back and we reframe shitty films like 300 or like the mythology of Thermopylae and the battles of Salamis and Marathon, we always frame it in the West that the Greeks are the good guys and they are fighting for their freedom and independence from the expansionist Persians. But I must stress you, stress to you that the Spartans were fighting for their right to enslave other Greeks. That's what they were fighting for. They called them helots. And under Persian rule, there was a chance that the Persians would force them to liberate their slaves and change their way of life. It sounds like the Texans. It certainly sounds like that stupid-ass Battle of the Alamo, but that's for <laughs> Myth is America, and we will be doing that episode at some unknown date in the future, so for sure. Um, sorry, Texas historians. Anyway, these are all nice little asides, um, but... Let's kind of close this out. Let's get back to like the point before we go completely off the rails with other examples. 
The Persians did expand using Zoroastrianism, and their expansion did lead to the spread of like the clincher for monotheism, the notion of one truth. How in your mind, Nick, does Zoroastrianism, based on the way we've described it, bolster or even create, maybe even found the notion of one truth? I don't know if I want to go as far as to say found without another hour of history, but I think it definitely bolsters for sure this idea of one truth. And you spoke on it at the beginning when part of Zoroaster's goal is to homogenize these competing narratives into one truth. And we talked about examples of how he incorporates aspects of all these other different stories into this one truth and makes a very compelling, clearly, claim to truth through the Zoroastrian faith. And we'll see this going forward with every single ideological system, whatever it is, claims to be the one truth going forward. Perfect. And there's basically it eliminates any opportunity for competing narratives. Absolutely. No, that's good. And, and like I said, I think we're going to probably, we're going to wind down. In fact, right now, before we go uh, again, get, get uh, sidetracked by some other squirrel, um, in the historical annals here. So, um, Look for an episode coming up on monotheism's further development, um, and, and it won't be like, again, deeply historical. It'll be more ideological from Judaism to Christianity. Um, I think we'll, we'll probably focus on those two um, because we recently just did episodes on Sufism, so we do feel like Islam has been covered a little bit already. Um, so we'll focus mostly on Judaism and, and pretty much Romanization of Christianity, I think, is like the clincher. Um, so look for that episode in the future. Um, but that's all I have right now. Nick, what do you have? You want to take us home? Yeah, you can find us online at revolutionandideology.com. If you're not watching this on YouTube, find our YouTube channel. We post every episode there. Also, we have a bunch of other episodes that we use in our classes and just for entertainment purposes. So you can check out some of that content. Um, if you really, really love what we're doing, you can support us on Patreon. Um, tell your friends, rate the episodes on whatever app you listen to this podcast on. Um, until next time, I'm Nick. I'm Jared. Later.